This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about Zainab Tefeki's Twitter and Tear Gas, part two. We're going to talk about the, the stuff. Like, we explained the <laughs> concepts... But there's just so much about this book that is still so relevant. Now, it's written in 2017, so obviously it has a little bit more chronal relevance than it does the postmodern condition by Leotard. But still, it's amazing how relevant this is. It's true. Now, it's worth saying before we go any further that just like the previous episode, we're recording this before the 2020 American election. So we have no idea what happened as you hear this two weeks ago. Uh, we're, we're not soothsayers. We can't yeah. see the future. We're, I'm not no. Yoda. So I have no idea what's coming. But anyway, always in future, the motion, always in future, always the motion, in future, is. Yep. The always motion in, is always in future. The motion is. <laughs> you've got it listeners it's 2020 always maybe in future the motion is so yeah we're gonna try to not say things that are untoward but things may be untoward in two and a half weeks that aren't untoward now so that's your caveat so this book it talks a lot about regime change about electoral change and about the nature of politics as it relates to social media. And she lays out sort of a pragmatic realist vision for how things operate. There are no hard and fast winners. There is only more time upon which things may happen. There are individual victories, but there are no sort of conclusions to things. There are lots of push and pull aspects. And ultimately, there's a plurality of things that people want to achieve. And so they don't all get achieved in the same way or with the same methods. She closes the book as she opens the book. She's a very good writer. She, she pulled it's this really off very, very masterfully with a phrase that the Zapatistas used to say. We will keep walking and keep asking questions. And this is basically her frame for what she's up to here. She thinks that progress is possible. We will keep walking. But she doesn't think that the answers are clear cut. We will keep asking questions. And this is because she points directly at governments as not being fond of protest. Turns out. Wow. Dang. Who'd have seen that coming? But it's more important than that because the nature of protest is evolving. So in China, in one of the most interesting and revealing sections of the book, the Chinese on their individual social media platforms, so they don't have Facebook and they never have, mm -hmm. but they have their own social media platforms, they are allowed to criticize the government, even very strongly. But anything that refers to mobilizing the people is disappears, is censored. Even mobilizing in favor of government initiatives. That was one of the most fascinating notes in the entire book. Is that the Chinese feel like if people learn to mobilize for anything, then they could mobilize for everything. 
And the Chinese government is tiny compared to the billion people who are not the government or more. I mean, the Chinese state apparatus is huge, but like there's way more of them who are not in the Chinese apparatus, depending on how you think about government business interactions, a whole other episode that we've done before, actually. <laughs> That's an entire podcast all its own. Not not just a podcast episode, not just a podcast season. That's like five yeah. years of yeah. could be a podcast. Yeah, it definitely could. So that's an, an interesting point that they are not just saying like, yeah, you're not allowed to protest. Like, they don't say that. They right. actively take steps to quash the things that may lead to protest in ways that people are not even aware of unless your thing gets squashed. Because the game is attention. Yes, and they, A, censor things to avoid them gathering attention. So they'll actively remove them because all of the Chinese social media are actively censored. But they also, and this is a, a play that other countries have put in their own playbooks, even though they don't and cannot in most cases develop the kind of censorship infrastructure or closed internet infrastructure that China has invested in. They pay hordes of people in what is sometimes called the 50 cent party after the fact that they are allegedly paid 50 cents per post they put online supporting the government. Harvard scientists, social scientists did a study on this. And what they found is that per Tufeki's points throughout the book, the key is not just trolling as much as we get the attention on that in the West over the last handful of years, especially because of a largely Russian armies of trolls flooding social media and generating hostility and argument. Yeah. The tactic that China has taken and that other governments are learning to take as well to quash protests or possibility of protests is to overwhelm with just other stuff. Because if the key is attention, then starting a big, loud argument, well, that could work, maybe, but it could also end up just drawing more attention to the thing you don't want attention drawn to. Right. And so on days of the year that people might be inclined to think of things from, say, the era of the Cultural Revolution or from Tiananmen Square or times like that, they will have this army of people out there employed by the government posting about anything and everything else, drawing attention in massive volumes to everything else to prevent attention from going to those things, especially yeah. because the way social media works, if one of those things did garner attention and blow up, did go viral, it would be very hard to counteract that. Not impossible, mm -hmm. but very costly. It's much easier for them to counter all of that, not directly, but by trying to do an end around. Let's talk about sports mm -hmm. loudly. All day, all week, for a week surrounding Tiananmen Square anniversary and so on. Yeah. And so it's interesting that the Chinese, again, because of their long investment in their infrastructure, the Great Firewall, their own software industry that supplies the software that stays behind the wall, all this sort mm -hmm. of stuff, the Chinese are able to do things that other governments can't do. And because of the nature of protections in America, other governments that want to meddle with American affairs are able to interact with Americans directly. You can just famously, Russians can just buy ads if they feel like it. Yep. Uh, but furthermore, they don't have the same capability as they do in China because of a sort of inverted 
system where you can easily drown out things in a censored space. You can attempt to eliminate the things you don't want to see and then drown it out with things that you do want to see. But in America, you can't really censor things, although Twitter, low, is trying in various Mm -hmm. strange and unfortunate ways. Twitter? Incompetent? Who'd have thought? Yeah, I mean... To be fair, it is a hard problem. It's a hard problem. It's a whole lot of discussion. The Hunter Biden thing was a total train wreck from the minute that it started. The whole thing. It's just everything was about that. Everything about that was terrible. We're not going to talk about that. But it's an example of the limited ability that anyone in the United States has to censor information that is disliked by someone right (laughs) so you it's hard to drown those things out here because you don't have the other half of the mechanic right and so you can muddy the waters you can do lots and lots of thread hijacking and you can do lots and lots of covert influencing and these sorts of things but you can't do the same sorts of things that china does now in america as i mentioned on the last podcast this can make social media somewhat untenable but in america social media is not the only way that people mobilize there are lots of other things namely email please stop sending me email that people mobilize through and text messages and text messages i know i just got one too like it's a thing so we have lots of other methods that are in some degree powered by social media like Mm -hmm. i connected with this group via social media, go to their website, give them my email address, and then my phone number, and then they text me. And so it's part of the ecosystem, but it's not as limited. And I would say, Tveki is saying, it's not really as limited as that in other countries either, but because of the protections that America has, it's more capacious to to use her word in a different sort of frame. Like you have uh, the American political system has different capacities. Yeah. Even to protect itself electorally, right? Like we complain about the Electoral College. The Electoral College is the most sturdy and durable historical piece of governmental choosing process in the entire world (laughs) at this moment. Okay, now that's the point where you may be thinking like, no, it's not. That that was gone like two weeks ago. Sorry, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Super, super, hopefully not. Yeah, the the key difference for Western democracies in general is also an artifact of attention, but it's a very different artifact of attention. Right. And that is the radical increase, intended or not, that social media creates mm-hmm. of sources of information means that trust tends to decrease. And there are other factors yes. in this as well. Uh, plenty of other factors. And that, again, could be its own podcast. But there are really significant ways in which the profound multiplication of voices makes it difficult to know who's authoritative and who to listen to. There's a devolution of authority down to whoever is the best at running a Twitter account rather than having some sort of established gatekeeper system. Now, this, as we've talked about over many, many years now has upsides and downsides. And it has downsides. I would argue that most newspapers in the early 1900s were the equivalent of Twitter pages that were just more successful. <laughs> like the yellow journalism from 1905 to about 1930 was like basically Twitter. <laughs> it started though because of the costs of production 
it was still harder than Twitter is. And those oh, yeah, no, I'm just do, talking about yeah. the content. Philosophy, yeah, content, content quality, philosophy, yeah. quality, but... <laughs> Reliability. Uh, what I bring that up for is that 90 years later, those are the gatekeepers now. Like, they have... Now they're an august and venerable institution that has 100 years of history. So things can change over time. But also, as Eisenstein notes, the shift in media makes a radical difference in how authority works. This was one of the points we noted in our discussion of the printing press as an agent of change. I fully agree. That shift to print, like now the shift to digital and social media, radically changes the way that information is disseminated and therefore changes how authority works. Yeah. And Tufeki points this out. This is one of the places she actually footnotes the printing press as an agent of change. She notes that actually one of the earlier uses of the printing press was for printing indulgences, the mass printing of which was the thing that made Martin Luther so angry that he started the Reformation. And well, have you seen the last 500 years? Yeah. Things went differently yeah. as a result of the Reformation. Yeah, they did. So I I say that Fully agreeing with Tufeki and saying that mm-hmm. we're in, like, basically year 11 of Twitter, right? Like, we're, mm-hmm. we haven't even made it out of the 1500s in comparison right. to, like, it, the printing yeah. press. Like, there's... It's like 1560 right now. Yeah, like, there's, it's entirely possible that, like, in 50 years, we're like, yeah, you know, those reputable Twitter pages, the ones that are, like, 50 years old. <laughs> Um, and so but it's just because of the nature of the shift that we're living through Mm -hmm. we don't have that space and like i think that eisenstein aptly noted out that like information was kind of chaotic for the first 40 years after the printing press like people just started like reprinting books in mass and like reprinting them badly and like printing indulgences printing random pamphlets like (laughs) yeah yeah it took a long while for norms to be established and for things to stabilize and to be very clear stabilization in that case was a sort of stabilization of norms around printing and development of new legal norms and whatnot yeah but stabilization as such i don't know if it's stable i mean (laughs) you want to get past the end of the hundred years war maybe you start to get to claim it maybe it's later than that but i mean it was a long time in a lot of wars. well and i just also claim that like the american news press was part of that problem and like that's in the 1900s so right you know i think that one as she notes this is always an ongoing thing right like the election will not like end our history right like fukuyama is not right this is not the end of history that book has not aged well wow super (laughs) not yeah i feel bad for that guy he's still like an actual academic too like i'm sure yeah he doesn't get to go to many conferences without hearing about it but (laughs) the the process that she talks so much about in here like the process of building capacity the process of protesting the protest of the process of change is an ongoing thing like we as moderns or postmoderns like the concept of finishing things we like the finality of like and then it was done because that's like a that's like an enlightenment <laughs> sort of thing like here's the beginning here's the ending it's a fact happened but like pre-enlightenment like everything was a long line like it was just that was how life was 
there was no, I mean, part of Eisenstein's interesting thing is how the printing press like helped time become time, mm-hmm. which is like mind bending. Um, <laughs> and so I think that this, this process that she talks about is, is really accurate. It's, it's that we have to get used to the changes that have happened to us. Yep. And we have to make some of those bad effects of changes go away and we have to amplify positive effects, but that choice will then have effects and we'll have to deal with that and then deal with the next Mm -hmm. thing. And, and so it's, it is part of the reason I think we like this book so much, both of us is that it does not give easy answers and it does not conclude the discussion. It just says like, Hey, it's going to take a long time and I don't know what the end is. And like, the best thing we've ever come up with was moral imagination. So we definitely don't have like solid answers for the long term. Now we've had short term policy things and she even gestures towards some of the policy initiatives that she would like to see, particularly around censorship of, of platform material and things like this. Although she is very quick to note that it will make its own problems. And so she is, she is just extremely pragmatic probably the most pragmatic writer I've ever read and that like, okay, we can do that. Here's what's going to happen. We can do this other thing. This was going to happen. And then I don't know what's going to happen after that. Like nobody knows. And so, yeah, it's a very refreshing book to see someone be like, I don't have the answers. You don't have them either. Let's make it work. Yeah. I was, I was struck a couple times reading this by the way that for all, they are very different writers with very different interests and very different focuses and from what i can tell fairly different politics zainab tufeki and ben thompson make a very interesting compliment to one another (laughs) and they've they've worked together yeah and like if i were going to pick two people to read as a recommendation to our audience to think clearly about these things those two are the top of the list by a lot oh yeah and i could pick it you know i could fill out the top five But those two are the top of the list, substantially so. And the reason is that Ben Thompson thinks clearly about economics and their effect on technologies and technologies and their effect on economics. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tefeki clearly thinks about mobilization and people power and the the limits and affordances of technology on those issues. Right. And if you want to be like super, super devolve the argument down, like a main concern about technology right now is like whether it's people or economies. Because you can serve the economy, but then you're going to hurt some people. You can serve some people, but then you're going to hurt some economies. Maybe not all of the people and maybe not all the economies, but like, that's really the argument. Now, How you get those right. Yep. And, and that's not the only argument, but that's the one the United States is having right now mm-hmm. in almost everything. And in particular in technology, where we are remit is, that is yep. the argument. Because if you're for economies, like ain't nothing wrong with Google right now. Like, DOJ, get on out of here. They're making all the money. People choose them freely. Have fun. And Ben Thompson has words for yeah. you. Well, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> and at a basic level, like the reason that the stock market is up this year and that people's retirement portfolios are fine is because of Google and Apple and three other companies, right? Yep. So if you're on that side, you're like, hey, that's good. Like, let's keep my retirement going. Like, I appreciate that. <laughs> and I see that argument and I feel that. Right. On the other hand, we just went through a summer, didn't we? <laughs> and that was a thing that a lot of people 
had to grapple with. It's like, how do we do this? How do we respond to yet another Black Lives Matter protest action of yet another problem of policing violent actions towards black people? It's a hard thing. And so you got to balance. And to their credit, Thompson and Tefeki understand that you have to balance. And so that's what makes them the best is that they are aware that they have their preferred policy positions, but that they probably are not the right ones all the time. And they're aware of the limits of their knowledge as well. True. I was reading one of Thompson's daily updates this week, and he just freely noted that he has this thing he's working out in public through his writing about trying to think about what a healthy regulatory frame for big (laughs) tech companies would look like. And he basically described it my, like, you know, partly worked out frame for regulation. And and I think that's exactly right. And similarly for Tufeki, that recognition that we are still working out the consequences of these things, that movements are still working out the consequences of these things for them. And that kind of humility, as as listeners to the show will know by now, is something we deeply, deeply appreciate. Yeah. The last thing I want to note for my part on this, and then I'll leave room for a closing statement on Stephen's part, yeah. is I was also encouraged by the way that movements can grow if you couple the power of social media and the power of things like the internet with a commitment to doing the work of building the network. If you do the work of creating those network internalities over time, because my medium to long-term interests politically are in seeing significant change emerge in the possibilities for our party system. And that seems crazy and impossible <laughs> in a lot of ways. My four but, party system, my four yeah, party yeah, yeah, system. That's right. I want the American Solidarity Party to like actually be meaningful in yeah. a couple elections. And on the one hand, this year, looking at their website and their candidates' website, it was a discouraging look. But the reality is, if people who understand the dynamics Tufeki's talking about here get involved and start doing the work... You can move the ball. You can change the game. And when she notes that parties that didn't exist... Eight years ago, 10 years ago in Europe, have won elections. Significant elections. become the lead parties in certain countries. Now, sometimes that's terrifying because you're like, oh, I don't want that party in charge. But nonetheless, the possibility for change that way to, to lean on the moment can be encouraging and can be put to good ends rather than only frightening ends. Yeah. I might have to go build them a website next time around because... <sighs> Yeah, uh, please do and help it on its way as a person who voted for them last time. But the thing that I saw about this book that was most encouraging, because I also was encouraged, except for chapter nine, which was the point. Yeah, chapter nine had me thinking hard about ways that could could future parts of my career be involved with helping change some of those dynamics? I don't know. I can't tell the future. Always in future, the motion Always is. Always in future, listeners. the motion is. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it got me thinking hard about those yeah. dynamics. Well, and, you know, we're all placed in certain places. You work at LinkedIn. Yep. I work at I do. a university. So the nature of the civil rights movement that she mm-hmm. discusses, the American civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s, she 
deeply admires them for their abilities to do all three of the things that she mentions Mm -hmm. to disrupt capacity, to control the message, and eventually to get electoral power alongside those other two. And as you can see, like 60 years on, that act is still there. It changed things and it did not get changed. Now, there's obviously challenges to it all the time. We, We keep on. We keep walking. But at a basic level, things are different because they kept going. And it's she she talks about like the people who organized the logistics of getting people in buses to and from DC, mm-hmm. which was done entirely on index cards from hundreds of thousands of people. And the poor young activist who was in charge of this, like actually didn't make it slept to the rally, through the slept through the march yep. because she was so exhausted having achieved everything she was asked to achieve. God bless that woman. Yeah. So it's encouraging to see that like, one, you can do this stuff, as you noted. Yeah. And two, that the, the formula is not magic. Right. There's a way this happens. And this was the first book I've ever read on Occupy... And on Mm, mm -hmm. some of the other Arab Spring protests. And I've read other books about this. And they sort of just get to the end and then they were like, eh. And then, you know, people got tired and moved on. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Like, why? Right. And, you know, and I kind of saw those things happen. And so I knew that, like, people were frustrated by things in the movement that were working out. And like, but this is the first book that explains why those things didn't work out. And clearly says, like, this was always going to fail. They wanted it to do certain things. It did those things. And it didn't do the things that other people wanted it to do. Didn't do the things that were necessary for that to be possible. Right? Like, it didn't achieve this world-beating sort of potential because that was not the goal for some of these protests. Right? But other people wanted that to be the goal. They wanted more taxes on the rich. But they didn't go out there to Occupy and be a part of Occupy and see what it was actually doing, which was protesting, but not electorally. They don't they didn't trust electoral politics. They think it's only for the rich. Fun fact, the way we do it right now, it kind of is like so I get that. Like and so I, I just was really, really enamored with the analysis here. It's the first analysis that I've seen that was like, oh, well, OK, I get that now. I get where this is coming from. I get how that happened. I knew all those parts, but I just didn't put them together in that way Mm -hmm. to now understand it. And so I think, A, I want to give this to every person who cares about politics, like politics, just in general, right? Like not even if you're like a protester or anything, but like, look, if you want some policy to happen, read this book. I'm handing this book to my camera right now. (laughs) Because this is how not only protest happens, this is how policy happens, this is how in movements happen. And like what's frustrating for a lot of people is that because of the American awkward system that we have, we have in a large extent devolved our politics down to the judiciary system, which on some level is, I mean, better than some of the alternatives. Like <laughs> that's fine. Granted. Now, bad but not as bad, not, not anywhere near as bad as it could no. be. And so 
at a basic level, yes, judges are important. The Supreme Court is important. Lower courts are important. We have laws. The more important laws are in your country, the more important judges are, right? Like, that's part of how law works. Um, it can also go backwards. The less important that laws are in your country, the more important judges are. So, like, it's not a permanent stability thing. And you, your mileage may vary on which you think the American populace is. So, that's the thing. But to me, I felt like... For the first time in a long time, someone was like, no, we can do policy in the internet era. This is how you do it. Here, have this. Right. Like, take this. It's dangerous out there. <laughs> yeah. And it's not a it's not a panacea. She doesn't have answers for how you deal with some of the polarization no. that is dramatically heightened by it. And I'm going to be watching her because she's clearly thinking about these things. And it could be that she has insightful things to say in the next five years on this subject. So Indeed. keep your eyes open. Aside, she just started a newsletter, which we will link to in the show notes, and it looks like it's going to be good because she's basically doing the Zeynep Tufekci thing where she looks at hard problems and tries to think really hard about them. It's going to be less polished because it's a newsletter. The point is kind of to do the work that a newsletter or a blog does and think in public, but she could have interesting things to say here, but at a minimum, this book helped frame the conversation and crystallize a lot of things in really helpful ways Mm. that I agree. I think anybody who's interested in how current electoral politics in the West or movements anywhere around the world work should read this because she's got a good handle on it and there's a lot to learn from. And there's hope of, hey, we can can apply these lessons and these ideas to do better on these things and to make change. It's true. But will her newsletter... Be as funny as Matt Levine's. Uh, that's impossible. <laughs> uh, the music at the beginning of the episode is Drop Off by Vertal featuring Severin Bruhin and Lauren Hignell. I've been getting into jazz. Sorry, guys. You're going to have to get used to that. I guess I'm going to have to get used to it, uh, too. You're the guys that I'm talking to, Chris. <laughs> What? Am I plural I mean, now? That's strange. I mean, I was I was talking to the audience, but you knew who I was talking to. <laughs> you were talking to me. Yes. Well, you can take over I music. I'll survive. You can take over hey, music if hey, you want to. Hey, music if hey, you want to. Hey, music if hey, you want to. Hey, music if hey, you want. With which this episode opened, or if you have other questions or comments, <laughs> you can send them to hello at winningslowly.org. You can also reach us on Twitter at Winning Slowly or on Facebook at Winning Slowly Podcast. A little while back, I heard about a podcast that had an Instagram. What do you put? Uh, we haven't tried that. We're not what going to try put? that. Like but pictures of I'm, yourself podcasting? Yeah, I mean, boring. links to link to show in profile, link to episode guess, in profile. Yeah, well, we are both wearing suit coats today. I mean, I guess that would make a good Instagram photo for the gram. In any case, email us or reach out to us otherwise, and Stephen will eventually get back it's to you. It's true. Hold on. I'm taking this photo for the gram. I already did it. Oh. Mm. So if uh, you'd like to support our shenanigans, I don't know why you would at this point. <laughs> if you want to uh, support us on Patreon, you can uh, find us at patreon.com slash the Chris and Stephen comedy hour. <laughs> That's not the actual URL, people. <laughs> Patreon. It's slash winning slowly. Patreon.com slash winning slowly or directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. And as, as always, always. Whoa. Oh. I forgot a thing. We everybody. did. This is important. And so, you know, after I say this, I'm going to have to go cut 
and then edit this into the preceding episode as well. So when you hear this, after you've heard the other episode, you'll know that I said that after I said this. <sighs> Look behind the curtains, listeners. Exploding heads. Next month, we are reading, as the final book of season eight, Robin Sloan's Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Oh, I started it. And it makes me it so happy. I'm only a couple chapters in, but it's delightful. so good. And I'm so glad this is the it's book we're ending It's literally on. delightful. I am full of delight when I read the book. It's really good. It is so good. So even if you haven't read anything else, you should read this with us. It is also short. It involves knitting. And books. And 3D effects. And secrets and mysteries. And codes. And Stephen, you can't say anymore because I've only read like three I'm chapters. I'm just naming so. nouns. <laughs> Until next time, thanks for listening. And now I will cut in the part where I did that thing.